It's common for pet owners to come into close contact with their pets, and we often think nothing of it because our pets provide us with many emotional and social benefits. But pets are also a potential source of infection, especially with some at-risk patients. Yet studies suggest that physicians don't commonly discuss this risk, even if their patient is immunocompromised. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Jason Stull, a veterinarian and assistant professor in the Department of Veterinary Preventive Medicine at Ohio State University. In the review he co-authored, Dr. Stull looks at common pet-associated zoonotic infections, high-risk groups, and prevention strategies. Dr. Stull, welcome. Thanks for joining me today to talk about your review. Truly my pleasure. Well, a lot of us have pets, and my home is blessed with a bed of fish called Wilfred. Overall, pets play a relatively small role in the transmission of disease. There are certain groups, though, who are at increased risk of pet-associated zoonotic diseases. Who are these patients? Well, as we begin our discussion, I think the first thing that we really need to, to comment on is the fact that it's really important that people understand that pets do have a number of really important social, emotional, and health benefits. And so people live very closely with their pets. They have strong interactions with their pets. Many people sleep in the same beds as their pets. And with that close interaction, all pets, just like everyone else, do carry diseases that can be transmitted to people. And when we do see disease in individuals, typically the most severe disease, the diseases that typically may last the longest period of time or have the most serious complications, typically occur in one of four different groups. So those can be kids under the age of five, Older adults, here we're talking about individuals greater than or equal to 65 years of age, individuals that are pregnant, or those that are immunocompromised in some way, whether they be congenital or acquired immunodeficiencies, such as individuals diagnosed with cancer or on various types of therapy or endocrine dis- disturbances. So what are some types of infections that we can get from pets? Well, it's important to recognize that really any pet, any species can carry organisms that can be infectious, can be zoonotic to people. And and that's really, really, really important. But there are certain types of organisms and there are certain types of animals that can that are more likely to transmit these pathogens. So the, the one that certainly, there's, there's a handful that certainly come to mind when I'm asked this question, and probably number one that we, we oftentimes think about in, in the healthcare field is salmonella. Certainly anyone can get salmonella, but those that are immunocompromised or young are at much greater risk for severe infection, bacteremia, the types of pets that typically uh, may be more likely to carry this organism uh, and thus transmit it to people would be reptiles, amphibians such as frogs, exotic species such as hedgehogs, rodents, mice and rats, and even young poultry. And certainly we've seen through the years a number of human outbreaks of salmonellosis that have been identified and linked to these particular types of pets. And a critical component of this is, is certainly that, that children, that young individuals are at the greatest risk many times here. So one particular study, for instance, found that 31% of all reptile-associated infections in people occurred in individuals under the age of five, and actually 17% of all infections were under the age of one year of age. So what this says to me is a couple of things. One, that kids are certainly having contact with these particular types of species and, and, and developing infections, but also that something that's unique about salmonella is that it's unlikely that probably the one-year-olds are getting up and, and changing the tank and dealing with you know the, the turtle or the fish or whatever it is that they're dealing with. And then what's more likely happening is that this particular organism, this pathogen, is being spread on the hands of parents uh, in the environment that the animal is having contact with. 
Another organism that certainly we th sometimes uh, think about and is, again, getting a lot of attention is Bartonella, or typically results in cat scratch disease. So here, the cat is the reservoir, is what carries this particular organism that um, certainly in immunocompromised people can lead to pretty serious disease, such as endocarditis or, or neuritis. And whether it's the scratch of a cat or even potentially the, a bite of a cat or fleas that, that have bitten a particular individual, that's where typically this organism can be transmitted and can result in pretty serious disease. One that many people may not even be aware of, but I think highlights some of the complexities of, of pet-associated infections is the organism called Capnocytophagia canamorsis. So this is a bacterial organism which is a commensal. It lives in the vast majority of dogs' and cats' mouths. It lives there without any problem. It doesn't make them sick typically. But it can be transmitted to people, typically through bites or even through saliva. So through, for instance, licking of mucous membranes or licking open wounds. And uh, this, this particular pathogen, although not oftentimes identified in human infections, when it is identified can result in very, very serious infections. And so some individuals that are identified, you know, some reports have indicated up to 30% of individuals that are actually uh, diagnosed with this particular organism will actually die, unfortunately. So things like wound infections, uh, DIC, and as I mentioned, death, uh, unfortunately, are, are complications from this organism. People at, at greatest risk are those without a spleen, individuals who are dependent on alcohol, alcoholics, and elderly adults. And, and then finally, an area that I think um, is, we're beginning to see a lot more interest. We're beginning to see this is kind of an evolving area that we're beginning to hopefully understand this, this movement between, of organisms between animals and people are the multi-drug resistant organisms or the MDROs. So here we're starting to see pathogens. It's very confusing to know whether or not the animal is a source of the, of the organism or is potentially just, for instance, a bystander that gets colonized or infected for a short period of time and then is able to transmit that organism. So the types of diseases that we sometimes think about would be uh, methicillin-resistant staph aureus or MRSA. The data supports that certainly people are the vast majority of where this particular organism typically lives out but through contact, pets can get colonized or infected with this organism and then potentially shed it as a secondary source. So we're seeing the same types of things occurring with uh, Clostridium difficile uh, with animals that, that have contact with people that have had C. diff. And the same is true for the extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing E. coli or the ESBLs. So again, this is an area that I think we will get a much better idea of in the coming years with new studies and, and new methodologies that we have to better understand the routes of transmission of these different organisms. So it's interesting. I used to watch my cousin share his ice cream cone with his dog, and it seemed quite disgusting to me. He didn't seem to mind at all. But it sounds from what you're saying is that if my cousin was healthy, which he was, that probably wasn't a dangerous activity. But if he'd fallen into one of the groups that you mentioned earlier, it could have been a real problem. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, again, I think it highlights the connection that many people have with their pets and some of the risks that the average physician, nurse, whomever may not even think about uh, the types of interactions that people may have with their pets. But it's those key groups that we, that we really need to be aware of and for some of these higher risk activities. So what can people do to reduce the risk of transmission and infection then? Well, so I think this gets back to that same issue that you just brought up a minute ago, which is that 
you know, highlighting those differences between those that are immunocompetent at lower risk and those that are at higher risk. So let's talk with the lower risk people first. So hand hygiene goes a long way. Simple washing with soap and water or alcohol-based hand sanitizers are perfect. And so for the average person after having a higher risk contact, so that would be, for instance, after changing the litter box or after picking up feces of a pet or after changing or, or, or fixing up the, the particular housing of your, your rodent's cage, hand hygiene is going to be really, really important. There's a couple of key high-risk species. So those are typically uh, reptiles, rodents, the young poultry, exotic species. Those are ones that after having contact with those particular types of species, then we definitely want to make sure that people are washing their hands. For individuals that fall into those other four categories, so the higher risk individuals, those that are young, those that are, are older adults, those that are pregnant or immunocompromised, we can pretty much break down the key pieces into three groups. The first is personal hygiene, which I, I kind of already stated for for the average individual. Again, hand washing, bites and scratches certainly need to be washed promptly. And for some individuals that are specifically very immunocompromised, they really want to be touching base with their physician to make sure that there isn't uh, the need for prophylactic antibiotics. You know, it may make common sense to a lot of people, but it still occurs quite readily, which is don't allow pets to lick open wounds, to uh, lick medical devices such as intravascular catheters all those types of things. When we move into types and ages of pets, again, highlighting those key species that we need to be a little bit more concerned about. So the reptiles, the amphibians, the rodents, and baby poultry and exotic species. These species really shouldn't be in the households of people that are in the higher risk groups. It doesn't necessarily have to be direct contact. A lot of these pathogens can be transmitted through fomites, through the household environment, through the hands of, of family members. Animals with diarrhea. Many of the pathogens that we get worried about are certainly can cause diarrhea in, in companion animals. So whether it's Campylobacter, uh, similar types of organisms like that can cause diarrhea in our pets and certainly can be transmissible uh, to people. And certainly animals with diarrhea, um, they may be more likely to shed higher, higher amounts of organisms or they may be more likely to have uh, those particular fecal matter that be in areas that we may not know about. So animals with diarrhea, those higher risk groups need to be cognizant of that risk and be communicating with a veterinarian pretty quickly. When people get decide to get a new pet, one thing that we, we oftentimes see, again, I, I allude to the fact that people are very connected with their pets and pets provide a lot of important health benefits. And so one thing that we've identified through some of our own research as well as, as through this article is that we see the acquisition of new pets when people are oftentimes ill. And so we found, for instance, that when kids had recently been diagnosed with leukemia or with other types of cancers, that up to 70% of the new pets that came into these households were higher risk pets. So that was either one of those higher risk species or cats and dogs that are under the ages of six months of age. So young cats and dogs um, are more likely to be shedding some of the zoonotic pathogens that we get concerned about. And so being aware of the types of pets and the ages of pets that we get a little bit more worried about. And so if people are gonna get a new pet, certainly in many cases it makes a lot of sense, it's a great idea, but we need to make sure that when we are getting a new pet, we're not getting a higher risk pet, and we're getting a mature pet from a known source that's going to be less likely to potentially be transmitting diseases. And then finally, it's it comes down to that pet health and husbandry. So obviously, just like people, it's important to keep our pets healthy. So regular visits to the veterinarian, keeping that animal on preventative care, so removing fleas and ticks will be important. 
One thing I think that the vast majority of the public certainly doesn't understand, and probably true for many healthcare providers, is the, the zoonotic pathogens that we're talking about right now, none of these ones that I've listed so far are preventable from vaccines. So there, there certainly are some important ones like rabies uh, that are preventable by vaccines, but the vast majority of these zoonotics are not vaccine preventable. Therefore, just because an animal's been up to date on its vaccines doesn't mean that it's risk-free. And so these, these same general principles about hand hygiene, infection control, general practices to reduce risk are really, really key. And something that we're starting to see, it's been popular for a while, but we're starting to see potentially a resurgence in this, is the feeding of raw meats, raw egg products to pets. And I'm sure many, many people are aware that obviously these types of products are more likely to be contaminated with organisms like salmonella, E. coli, Campylobacter, and typically it's dogs and cats that are fed these products, are certainly those animals that are fed these raw products are more likely to actually shed those zoonotic organisms. And so for a high-risk family, we certainly want to try and discourage the feeding of raw meats or raw egg products. And then finally, certainly these types of households, we want to be really careful that anytime uh, the animal isn't feeling well, that there's any change in the animal's health status, that we're more proactive with seeking veterinary care to make sure that that pet is uh, healthy and is not shedding organisms that may be unsafe to uh, people in the household. I have to tell you, after reading the review, I, I rethought about how I handled cleaning our fish's tank. I've realized that probably dumping the water into the kitchen sink is not the best idea. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that because there's nothing like studying zoonotic organisms to re-evaluate the way you live life. <laughs> um, I've become much better at cleaning and disinfecting my own kitchen. I'm not crazy about it, but I pay attention to certain things. And exactly that, like we acquired a fish tank about a year and a half ago, and I was very careful about where I started putting the water. So trying to put it into a utility sink or dumping it down the toilet. But you're absolutely right. Many of these concepts, um, many people don't think about, uh, and many. And and in some of the studies where we would actually ask people um, if they thought that their animals could potentially carry organisms that they could transmit to them, people were almost outraged with the idea because these are family members and people really don't even think about their pets as potentially serving as a health risk to them. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, physicians may need to prescribe prophylactic antibiotics to immunocompromised people, but where in general do doctors fit into this picture? What can we do to help prevent these infections in our patients? Physicians are a really critical component to this equation. And there's a couple of places where we all fit in. So, so the first part is education is really, really important with risk mitigation. And so as I mentioned just a minute ago, the vast majority of the public has no concept that this is really something they need to be thinking about. And not only is that true for the general public, it's also true for those key high-risk groups. We certainly found that the educational level amongst individuals who had a kid who was recently diagnosed with cancer or other immunocompromising conditions, their education level was not necessarily any better about the, the subject than, than the average individual in the population. So part of it is probably educating ourselves as healthcare providers and then also making sure that we can educate our patients. And so in order to do that, we really need to be asking about pet ownership and pet contact or animal ownership and animal contact. So not only do about 50% of the population in North America own pets, but even of those individuals that don't own pets, probably about 30% of those have somebody in their household who frequently has pet contact. 
So that's maybe an uncle, uh, or maybe it's, it's at a, an uncle's house, or it's a friend's house, or it's in the park. So there's frequent pet contact which is occurring, and unless we're making that part of our normal activities in terms of questioning of our patients about these concepts, we're not going to pick up on those cues, we're not going to pick up on those risks, and, we're, and most importantly, we're not going to be able to change those behaviors. So that's the first thing, is, 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 really, is really incorporating that history of contact with pets and other animals. I'll say that many physicians, many healthcare providers, this is a bit of a, of a new uh, area. So I'm sure people are familiar with the general concepts, but some of the specifics may be somewhat new. There's a lot of great resources that have really come about in the last couple of years. And certainly going to the article, we have a number of places that are specifically highlighted. But just to, again, educate people on this podcast, um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States has recently launched or, or, or improved one of their particular links. And so going to that site and just kind of uh, looking at their A to Z or A to Z group and looking at animals, uh, you will actually find some really important information about animal-associated diseases. Uh, there's a group out of the University of Guelph that has a blog posting called Worms and Germs. And on that particular blog, there's a lot of great resources that are aimed at both the public. There's also ones that are aimed at physicians. And those specifically are about various pet-associated zoonotic diseases, husbandry recommendations for various pets. Also, we have an animal contact form that can be used by physicians or healthcare providers to help get at some of these, these key issues. And so making sure people are asking about the types of pets and that people may have contact with, the health status of those pets, and then most importantly, what preventative measures are people taking and what preventative measures really should they be taking and the importance of those particular pieces. I have one last question for you. Um, You've mentioned that the groups that are at increased risk, one of them obviously being people who are immunocompromised, these are often people who are in hospital. And one of the things that we're seeing, of course, is the use of pet therapy animals in hospital. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. So animals and pet therapy are very popular, and it's, it's a bit of a controversial issue, highlighting a lot of the same themes that we've discussed over, over the last little bit. There certainly can be a lot of important interactions, and there have been a variety of studies that have shown that health benefits can be very, very important, especially for people that are ill um, and that are going through various types of medical procedures. But the risks are also certainly present, and I, I highlighted on some of the, the human pathogens that potentially animals can move from, from patient to patient. So whether it's MRSA or Clostridium difficile. So there's, there's a variety of groups, uh, one recently that has released uh, some recommendations um, for pet therapy and for specific instances where, and types of pets and screening processes for these pets that should be considered. And so I would say that when a group is, is considering involving pets in pet therapy in the hospital situation or, or amongst individuals that may be at greater risk, it's certainly key to review some of these recommendations where pets are going to be placed. So certainly high-risk groups like I in intensive care units would probably be discouraged. Um, individuals that are severely immunocompromised, we want to be really careful about what types of contact they had and certainly the importance of hand hygiene following contact. So I would certainly encourage people to uh, review some of those documents and those are also highlighted in the resources section of, uh, of this article. That's great advice. Thanks Dr. Stull for talking with me today. My pleasure. We've been talking with Dr. Jason Stull, veterinarian and assistant professor at Ohio State University. To read the review he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.